For instance, once alcoholics admit to their bones that they can't stop drinking, many of them get sober. That makes no sense. When I can admit to my bones that there are things about me I can't change, change starts. Suddenly, there's movement. And a lot of that is in that great gift of self-acceptance. This is how I'm put together. And from self-acceptance comes a tremendous amount of freedom. A book that ta I'm, a, I'm a reader. I'm one of those people who read. Now, sometimes I read to escape. And sometimes I read to learn. And sometimes I read because I'm bored. There are a dozen reasons why I read. But I am one of those people who read all the time. And I have real strong likes and dislikes. Um, and there are all kinds of books that I... I mean, there's a long list. I mean, we can get into things like that. Um, but there are some books that really, really uh, explain things to me nicely. <clears throat> and one that I've read this past year and I found helpful is written by a physician named Gerald May, M-A-Y. And he's written several books. One is called Addiction and Grace. This was out several years ago. A lot of people read it. I tried reading it. I could not get past the first chapter without wanting to throw it across the little room. And I tried it two or three times, and I mentioned that to someone. And they said, well, then skip the first chapter. <laughs> Taking insight. Uh, and I did, and I find I like the rest of the book very, very much. I just couldn't read the first chapter. Um, and I'm sure there's a deep reason why I couldn't. Um, this is his first book. It's called Simply Sane. Simply Sane. Um, the small print is The Spirituality of Mental Health. The spirituality of mental health. And he thinks that the way, and I agree with him, many of us lead completely miserable lives because we are so embarrassed at who we are. And we're convinced that we sh if we could only fix ourselves a little, or a lot, we'd be fine. But to accept ourselves is so humiliating and so embarrassing. We can't do it. Um, and a lot of our culture plays into this. Almost all advertising plays into this. And here's what he writes about. He says, this is about, oh, about two or three minutes of stuff on fixing. Fixing, I'm going to get fixed. No, I'm going to fix them. In one day's bounty of television commercials, fixes are offered for every conceivable human defect. Fixes for constipation and for diarrhea, for runny noses, stuffy noses, ugly noses, pimply noses, for insomnia, for drowsiness. If you're bored, there's something exciting to fix your boredom. If you're ignorant, there's always something to learn. If you're not attractive enough, there's a beauty fix. There are fixes to make you smell good. There are even fixes to make you smell natural. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and to make your hair curly if it's straight, and straight if it's curly. I love that one. You know, as you see, different groups get approached different ways, get fixed. In all kinds of advertising, from the blatant affront of TV commercials to the subtleties of word of mouth, nothing can escape the fix. And it's not just that fixes are offered. The message is also that one ought to be fixed. See, you're not good the way you are. You're not good enough. You'd better be fixed. And then you can start your life. But until you're fixed, you don't have a right to a life, and you're taking up space. 
that if perchance one should pass a certain fixed by, not partake of its wondrous possibilities, one really isn't being very responsible for oneself. You know, let's get fixed now. Come on now. Our attitudes toward this fixed pitch are very interesting. On the one hand, there's a strong desire to be fixed. Boy, do I have that one. On the other, there's a feeling of being insulted by the suggestion that we ought to be fixed. It is not too difficult to accept that one's house, automobile, clothes, or sewing machine need to be fixed or improved upon. It is without great discontent that one might learn that there are better ways of washing dishes, laundering clothes, or fertilizing the lawn. But it becomes more irritating <clears throat> to be told that one should fix the way one's body smells, the way one wears one's hair, the form and substance of one's breasts, the configuration of one's hemorrhoids, or the water level in one's sinuses. <laughs> At the suggestion of fix, as the suggestion of fixes approaches closer and closer to one's sense of self, one tends to become even more insulted. Suggestions as to how one should behave or feel or what one should aspire to come more as an affront to human dignity. But in spite of the insult, there is always a market for the fix. Pills, liquids, understanding, knowledge, do your body this way or that. Change your food, change of scenery, change behavior. If the child is hyperactive, energy fix. If lethargic, stimulation fix. When worried, do an anxiety fix. When depressed, a happy fix. Having marital problems, marriage fix. Sexual difficulties, sex fix. Too shy and self-conscious, a confidence fix. Can't say no and stand up for yourself, assertive fix. Feel weak, vulnerable, abused in life, power fix. Poor, there's a way to get money. Feel a gap between yourself and your children, communication fix, understanding fix. Alienated, meaningless, wondering what it's all worth, spirit fix, religion fix. By this belief, that technique, this prophet, that guru, and be happy. Obsessed, entranced, hallucinating, preoccupied, impulsive, confused, despairing, suicidal, want to kill somebody? Mind fix. Be well adjusted, analyze, free associate, express feelings, get in touch, reenact, work it through, understand, relate, scream it out, live it out, act it out, transcend, integrate, and become whole. No wonder we're exhausted. It is a relief in the first step of the program to stand up loud and say, I'm pretty badly broken. I'm pretty badly broken. And I've tried all these uh, just this morning. And, uh, <laughs> and it's not working. Um, and he says this, and I think this is a key insight. I mean, you can never be satisfied with who you are. There's some truth there. I mean, growth continues and life develops and there's always new stuff. That's real true. But if, if it's all because you are humiliated by who you are, unhappiness is built into the system. Looking over history, um, it seems there may be another reason why all the fixes haven't been able to fix us to our satisfaction. It appears that the more fixes that are discovered, the more there is to be fixed. 
You just start digging. With each improvement, the more there is to be improved upon. The unending river of fixes continues to branch and branch, forming countless tributaries, innumerable swamps, but never reaching the ocean. You can make your own analogies between this and the fix of the drug addict. Sometime, at some point, sanity will have to ask, how long will this go on? Learning teaches us only how ignorant we are. That's true. Learning teaches us only how ignorant we are. At the end of three years of studying theology at the Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley, California, which I did in the mid-1970s and got sober during that time, uh, one of my professors in the last year said, if you leave these three years of study knowing how little you know, you're in a good place. Learning teaches us how ignorant we are, which would be beautiful if ignorance could be accepted. But we can't tell people we're ignorant. We have to lie and cover up, you know. Power teaches us only how weak we are, which would be fine if weakness could be affirmed. Discovery of new fixes teaches us only how much in us is imperfect, which would be superb if only imperfection could be loved. If only imperfection did not have to be fixed instead of accepted. To de- and I, I really think that part of recovery, a huge portion of recovery, is to learn how to live in and work through and talk about and function in the world where ignorance is a real part of our lives, weakness is a part of our lives, and, and imperfection is the way we understand a lot of things. <laughs> instead of, no, no, no. I'm only at my best when I'm totally strong and know everything and have no flaws. Annie L. up in Marin County says that um, perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor. Perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor. Because the oppression is, you aren't good enough. Ever try real hard and we'll put up with you. That's a terrible way to live. That's why so many of us at home walk on eggshells. Just waiting for one to break and get yelled at. It's miserable. Instead of saying, you know, things go wrong all of the time. There's a movie made a few years ago. Uh, is it Harrison Ford? No, it's not Harrison Ford. It's Jeff Bridges, maybe. He plays a fellow who is a real jerk, rich guy, powerful, uh, harsh, cruel, difficult, gets shot in the head. Um, and what's the name of the film? Regarding Henry. Regarding Henry. Classic recovery film. I recommend it to everybody who can stand it. Um, and he was, he was perfect. He was smart and he was tough and he was, he was wonderful in all kinds of ways. And he had the perfect wife and the perfect daughter and he was a tyrant. Well, he gets shot in the head and he has to relearn everything. He has to relearn how to talk. He has to relearn how to walk. And, and he comes home and he's full of fear about going home again because he can't remember his wife and his daughter. I mean, it's, and, and he's at the table and it's his first breakfast and there's, you know, tablecloths out for breakfast. Give me a break. Um, and everyone's on their best behavior because dad is home. Dad, who was the perfectionist tyrant, um, and, and the daughter, who's a nice little kid, uh, she knocks over the orange juice and there is, it, 
everyone stops because dad doesn't handle this well. And, and they're just waiting for the explosion. And he looks at her. Now, this is post-recovery. And he says, because the little girl, I think she says something like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And dad looks at her and says, oh, there's nothing to be sorry about. I do that all the time. And he knocks over his own juice. <laughs> and all of a sudden they're alive, you know, but it's just this, this moment. There, there is a poignant moment with the bullet in the brain. Uh, he loses so much of his memory. And, and he's going home and he's trying to tie his shoes and he can't remember how to tie his shoes. And his daughter is there in the hospital and she's very anxious about dealing with dad because he's, who is this guy, you know? And she goes and she helps him tie the shoes and he says, who taught you that? And she said, you did. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful film. But in recovery, and this happens to the family regarding Henry, the values change. The way the family interacts change, and they lose a lot of their old friends, who just can't quite put up with the fact that these people admit imperfection and weakness and ignorance. Um, which I think, and I, I, I don't want to make bumper stickers with imperfection, weakness, ignorance on it, but it, it really is a much easier place to live. And in Al-Anon, these become the regular topics of our meetings. How we're ignorant and what we learn. How we're imperfect and how we live in the world where progress is the key, not perfection. Progress. You know, uh, one of the Al-Anon speakers who goes around talking says, "Practice makes progress." <laughs> you know, practice makes progress, and 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 to accept the imperfection that sometimes, most of the time, I'm not functioning at a hundred percent. In fact, I think if I ever did function at a hundred percent, I'd blow up. <laughs> but I find I can have what looks and feels to me like a human life at somewhere between 25 and 80 percent. And sometimes I don't function very well at all, but I'm able to do some stuff. Uh, life is all about change. Some days it is a big deal to get out of bed and shower. Clean clothes, walk outside, success. <laughs> Other days, much more can get done. Uh, there are times I am very productive, and then I want to tell people about that. <laughs> but there are other times I don't get much done at all. Now, I, can, I consider that within the broad realm of normal. Usually, every so often the voice comes up that says you should be working harder, getting more done. Every day should be the same and you should be equally productive all days. I think that's not true <laughs> in my experience. Oh well, you can disagree. I'll, uh, I'll leave this book out simply saying by Gerald May. Uh, it is in stores. I got this at uh, Crown Books, not Crown Books, I got this at Barnes and Noble. And it, it, I don't, I don't read a lot of self-help books anymore because I think most of them are um, written to make the author rich because um, they promise to fix and most of us will get in line you know for the right this the right that fix me fix me fix me baby um, this this he says basically self-acceptance is the key to freedom 
and to try to do anything else will make you nuts. <sighs> Regularly we need uh, new starts. Regularly we need um, to go from that place of step one to step two. At least I sure do. Regularly I have the experience that I'm starting all over again. And this doesn't feel good. <laughs> um, one of the voices uh, will say, you should be a lot better by now. And the good news is I now just hear that as one of the voices. It took a few years to negotiate that. Um, but sometimes I function pretty well and sometimes I don't. And under both circumstances, I can talk about the weakness and the imperfection and the ignorance. Instead of saying, shouldn't I be so much better by now? I've been going to Al-Anon for years now. I shouldn't have this difficulty. I find that if I am emotionally involved with you on any level, I am stupid in your regard. I don't know what to do with you. If we have no emotional involvement, I can be pretty objective. But if, if you're a family member, if we've, if we've been in school together, if there's, I don't know how to do it. Um, I think that's a common experience. A poem concerning uh, going from step one to step two. This is by the Muslim poet Rumi. R-U-M-I, Rumi, he's a 13th century poet. He's quite splendid, lives in, lived in modern-day Turkey. Um, wrote in Persian, Farsi, I guess, I'm guessing, uh, which is not a language that we've had much contact with. As you know, during, we as Americans are a little self-obsessed, and we don't think any place else in the world is real. You know, if there's an earthquake in China, and a million people die, sometimes that makes the papers. Um, if there's a huge tidal wave in Bangladesh and 300,000 people are killed, that will make a little article, maybe a paragraph long. But if the cable car breaks down in San Francisco, that's the only thing on page one. You know, cable car breaks down San Francisco. Tourist angry. Uh, that's on page one. <laughs> Excuse me, American tourist angry. Otherwise... <laughs> We don't even think they're human. Um, what's the point of all that? Key? Oh, so we in the, the, the Western world, and the Western world is like this too, as Westerners, as Europeans and North Americans, we've always looked down on others, you know, as not quite understanding the depth of our understanding. So we've missed a lot. Um, as I, I've discovered, as I've had more and more contacts with, with Asia, uh, the Chinese were writing poetry and using printing presses when my relatives were still painting themselves blue in Britain, you know, so uh, having just come out of the trees <laughs> or the bog, you know, whichever. <laughs> so we've missed a lot. Um, as I, I've discovered, as I've had more and more contacts with, with Asia, uh, the Chinese were writing poetry and using printing presses when my relatives were still painting themselves blue in Britain, you know, so uh, having just come out of the trees or the bog, you know, <laughs> So um, we don't know a lot of non-European poets. 
and Rumi is writing in a, a language that's odd, and, and he's from the Muslim religion, and we haven't had a lot to do with them except an occasional crusade, so we don't get along. <laughs> I found it startling. Uh, this was what when Mr. Bush was president, and no, I guess it was Mr. Carter and Mr. Reagan right in that time, when we had all that early trouble with Iran, and, and the revolution in Iran happened, and the Ayatollah Khomeini came in, and not one single member of the American delegation in our embassy in Iran spoke the language. Not one. Well, gee, how did we get caught by surprise? Well, see, we didn't think we had to learn theirs. We thought they should learn ours, as any civilized person would, you know. Oh, my. Anyway, Rumi, Rumi, Rumi. Rumi has been translated into English in the last 50 years and in the last few years even more so and people are finding him to be right up there with Shakespeare as poet and, and he's, he's breathtaking. Here's one of his little things. Now he's a Muslim and as a Muslim he draws on a lot of different traditions. He sees himself as kin, cousin, to Christians and Jews and so in his poetry Moses gets written about, Jesus gets written about, Mary gets written about. I mean he's very, Abraham of course the father of all of the group He's a, he's a very powerful source. And here's a poem he writes on Jesus. He says this. I called, this is himself now, Rumi, I called through your door. The mystics are gathering in the street. Come out. The mystics are gathering in the street. Come out. The mystics are gathering in the street. Come out. You respond, leave me alone. I'm sick. The guy in the street cries out, I don't care if you're dead. <laughs> Jesus is here, and he wants to resurrect somebody. <laughs> when I'm in fit spiritual condition, I find that I participate in the program. I go to meetings, I return phone calls, I listen to people. When I start falling apart, one of the signs that I'm falling apart is I begin withdrawing. And I get to the place where, and this is the voice of sickness, leave me alone, I'm sick. Um, we talk about alcoholism as being a disease of body, mind, and spirit. I don't want to startle anybody, but there is evidence that all diseases are diseases of body, mind, and spirit. And we get real influenced by all of it. And one of the things that happens for people who become physically ill is they drop out. They stop participating. Depression regularly follows any kind of illness. Uh, what's the difference between depression and anger? My friend Curtis, who's a shrink, comes up with this definition. He says, uh, depression is anger without the enthusiasm. <laughs> Anger is a step up, as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, at least with anger, I'm not as isolated. And I think the biggest fear for me is, is that world of depression, that cut off, not having the ability to make contact with people. And regularly, I go there. Not bad, you know, but enough. And I won't suddenly notice, gee, I'm getting depressed. I'll again notice I'm waking up. I haven't been to a meeting in three weeks. I haven't exercised and I'm not returning phone calls. I must be depressed. And then I force myself 
to change behavior a little bit. I hate going to a meeting. Go anyway. But I hate it. It's fine. You're welcome. Glad to see you. But I hate this meeting. Gee, we're glad to see you. Of course you hate this meeting. Most of us do not jump towards recovery. Oh, I'm going to get well. Um, most of us hold on to the old stuff regularly. Now, that's part of the way I'm put together. And if I can accept it, I can work with it. See, it's not going to go away. I really don't think. I get to learn how to work with this regularly. And I'm fine. I mean, I've been around the program enough. I don't need new ideas about the program. I know the program. Thank you very much. I've read it. I've been there. My problem is not information. My problem is behavior. My behavior. I know what I'm supposed to do. I just can't do it. So part of my understanding of recovery is what we call footwork. It's not fancy. But there are certain things I really need to do that aren't fancy. And sometimes they feel smooth and sometimes they don't. But I have to put one foot in front of another, in front of another, in front of another, and participate on some level with the women and men in recovery, and then I'm part of. But I go back and forth on this a lot. And again, all of a sudden I'll notice, gee, I'm not participating. <laughs> How did that happen? Well, it's easy for me not to participate. Um, <sighs> this is, is just a historical reflection. This has this, uh, and then I want to talk a little bit about third step. Do I have time? I do. But this is just a footnote, and it, um, it's an observation. And it has to do with the AA Big Book, um, which I'm going to use a little bit this weekend um, because I'm, I'm finding a few, a few interesting things in here that, that I think are applicable. Um, number one, I've heard, if you've ever heard me before talk about the programs, you know I really believe that we are allies. If we think that we are adversaries, that's still signs of the disease being very operative in our lives. The 12-step programs are friends and allies. Um, this is an observation. There are two chapters in the book, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, one is the chapter to wives, and the other is the chapter to employers. These two chapters I want to talk about briefly. Bill Wilson pretty much wrote the big book. Uh, he did get some advice from people, but if you've ever dealt with people, you know that we're good with advice. Um, it drove him so crazy, he said, listen, I'll write it or you'll write it. Okay, who is it going to be? And, of course, most of us gifted critics don't want to do anything but criticize. We said, oh, Bill, you write the book. <laughs> he wrote all of the chapters except for the chapter to employers and the chapter to wives. That, that's not quite true, but it's close enough. He asked his employer, a guy named Hank P., to write the chapter to employers. That's why the voice sounds so different in that chapter. It's not Bill writing. It's Hank P. Now, Hank P. was alcoholic and manic depressive who died drunk because they didn't deal with the manic depression then. They just figured, do the third step. 
You know, you don't need lithium. And Hank dies drunk. But he writes the chapter to the employers, and at the end here he says, uh, Today I own a little company. There are two alcoholic employees who produce as much as five normal salesmen. One of them was Bill W. And of course, Bill, as a fairly traditional white male, just puts his employer on a great power pedestal. You know, even though Hank didn't quite get sober. Interesting contrast, and this is not a criticism, it's just an observation. Bill did not ask Lois to write the chapter to wives. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that seem like the most obvious thing Lois here? Here's a, write ten pages, would you please, about living with me? Um, <laughs> I've written about living with you. I don't know why I am. Um, they asked a woman in Akron, Ohio, Marie B., the wife of Walter B. from Akron, to write this chapter. And she did. And then Bill took it and revised it. Because what does she know, being a wife? Uh, I mean, it's startling, the, the attitudes that um, we live with. Uh, and Lois's response on that was, Bill rewrote this chapter, and I was mad. <laughs> they had a little tension there for a while. Um, and um, I just I, that's just for trivial pursuit. Bring that home and mention it. <laughs> um, and a thing on the third step. The third step reads, Step one is the, the admission of, of, of the disease, of the ignorance, of the brokenness, of the fact I can't fix me. Sometimes that's a very mild situation to be in, and sometimes it is a very painful situation to be in. Um, I, one of my rules of thumb for um, dealing with stuff is the exhaustion level, the depression level. Any day that I've had to go back to bed twice is a long day. And... I want you to know that in the last six months there have been two of those. I mean, I just, I literally didn't know what else to do. Tom, go to bed. Good idea. Boom. You know, and, um, and then, then that didn't work, so I had to do it again. Um, the second step says that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Could. That's what this power is about, being restored, being healed. Some kind of, of deep connection with healing and human life is here. Um, and as I mentioned last night, my experience is I did not march to step two. I was carried to step two. And I was carried to step two by rooms full of people. It's possible just to connect with one person, you know, but this makes us very crazy. Um, the disease of alcoholism in all of its forms, um, the disease of you know, the, the untreated Al-Anon, the disease of the crazy, crazy family is an overwhelming experience. One person cannot fix you. I know one person keeps calling me, hates meetings, wants me to fix them. And I tell them, I can't do that. Um, you are so crazy that you need rooms full of people to deal with you. He's also very depressed, as many alcoholics are. And I don't know, um, well, here's how I, depression masks itself in lots of ways. But one of the rules of thumb for how do I know I'm dealing with a depressed person 
If you're feeling pretty good, and then you spend half an hour with someone, and they leave, and you feel like you have just been drained of all blood, <laughs> you're with someone who's real depressed. I mean, that, that is the diagnostic I always use. See, they don't have energy of their own. They must use yours. Now, if someone's real depressed, and you're dealing with them one-on-one, -on -one, they'll win. And this is why it is real important to put someone who is that, that fragile in a room full of all kinds of people. Because there's energy in the room. Then talk to them. After they've been in the room, they've gotten some energy. Even if they don't like the meeting, they'll pick up some of the strength from the room. Then talk to them. One person I know who is real good on this stuff says that he will talk with the people he sponsors willingly, but between each conversation they must go to five meetings. Well, I don't want to. I just want to move in with you. I know. <laughs> and of course you do, because that's the easier, softer way. And you'd want me to fix you. Instead, you have to go to some place where it's, it's the second step, where there's some hope of your sanity. And I find myself too frequently, I need the energy in the room, the strength in the room. Many of us make that connection with the higher power in the room, and, which is another reason for meetings. But I don't like what they say. Well, then don't listen. <laughs> Tune out like the rest of us do. <laughs> but go there. There's strength in the room. There's strength in the room. Um, this gives us some energy that we need. Okay, so that, and then step three, um, it's turning it over to this power, this, this higher power, which restores us to sanity. Two images. One of my problems with turning it over, and I have regular problems with that, is if I turn it over, I'm not going to get my own way. I hate that. And my favorite prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven, give it to me now. <laughs> but that's not the prayer. It's, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Those words choke as they come out of my mouth. Most meetings we just chant, Oh, no, no, no. Don't, aren't you people listening to what you're saying? Don't you know? Uh, it's very hard. So one of my friends said this third step prayer, like we turn it over figuring, okay, I'm turning it over, now I'm going to get real well, I'm going to get in a great physical shape, I'm going to have a great relationship, my kids will get out of jail, we're going to get along fine, my parents are going to become reasonable, I mean, oh, it's going to be real, real nice, oh God, I turned it all over to your hot, sweaty hands. And then you do that for a couple of days, and then one morning you look out the window, you hear this noise, you wake up, you hear it look out the window, and there's, there's God um, on this machine, and the machine has a huge wrecking ball on it. And, and, and God's starting to swing the wrecking ball. And then so you say, what are you doing? And God kind of waves at you, you know, in a little embarrassed wave. And then... And everything is blown to pieces. I can't tell you how often that's in my experience. And you say, well, God, would you explain this all to me? He says, well, the foundation's rotten and the rooms are weird and it's the wrong color. And we just have to start 
all over again, and the quickest way is just with the wrecking ball. So relax. <laughs> so in your book, when you, when you um, have the third step there, somehow get a little photograph of a guy with a wrecking ball and just put it there, because again, we're not going to get our own way, which raises the bigger question of can God be trusted? If I'm not going to get my own way, can God be trusted with a better idea? And this is right at the core of where a lot of us live. It's time. Let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll... Oh, 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 what? Hi. Okay, thank you. I'm sure that's for something good, Chris. <laughs> So you shouldn't have told them you where you were. Uh, next time, tell them Friday. Don't tell them anything, but when you leave the house on Friday, just say, I'm going out for a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> and then come back three days later. And... I already made reference um, to the article in the New Yorker last year, March of 1995, to the article about Alcoholics Anonymous, written by a couple of fellows. And um, the fellow talked about addiction, active addiction being right here, way down deep in the brain stem, you know, where the reptile lives. The writers interviewed a couple of, of people, and they did a lot of the history of AA. They did a lot of the history of AA in New York. They didn't do much about Akron, Ohio. But remember, the name of the magazine is The New Yorker. So they would, I think, regard Akron, Ohio as being you know, a little further than we need to travel to learn anything about the program. But they did go up to Massachusetts, and they talked to a shrink up there who did a lot of work with folks who were addicts and alcoholics and had other kinds of addictions. And they asked the shrink, I'll put your professional hat on doctor, okay, uh, what do you think about AA? You know, and he said, oh, he said, AA works. It, it, it deals with a lot of very, very difficult things. And part of the genius of AA is that it understands the paradox of getting well. And it understands the paradox of the sickness. And they said, what do you mean by the paradox? Well, he said, it's uh, some groups go on one side of the discussion and other groups go on the other side of the discussion. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, they know this. Here's the paradox. Part A. Um, you are not responsible for being an alcoholic. You are not responsible for your addiction. I mean, you get, it's in the DNA or luck of the draw or happened in the fourth grade or whatever. I mean, you are not responsible for being an alcoholic. That's A. B. However, <laughs> you are responsible for your behavior. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, it's not your fault that you're an alcoholic, but it is your fault that you're an asshole. <laughs> um, we get to make choices. This is why so much of recovery for the alcoholic is the steps which mean taking an inventory to see what your side of the craziness has been and then making amends. Because we're responsible 
for our behavior. This is as true in Al-Anon. Um, we're not responsible for having holes in our head. I mean, they're there. And whether it's in the DNA or family training or whatever, I am someone who is drawn to the truly crazy. I just like them. Um, that's not going to change. And I'm res so my attraction will not change the way I'm put together. But I am responsible for my behavior. Um, as Blanche says, I do not have to like any situation. Some situations are awful. I don't have to like every situation. However, I have to like myself in the situation. What are, how I behave here is real important. So, self-knowledge is part of recovery. Self-knowledge is part of the process, and it's why we are asked to do some writing. Uh, I don't like writing. Um, I think it takes too much time. Um, what did I just hear on NPO? I carry a card, or a, a pen and a card in my car, so when I hear something on the radio, I can write it down. Here is what Ernest Hemingway said this morning. <laughs> he writes, um, I write to discover what I believe. Now, for some of us, that is the process. It's just real hard to know what's going on unless we put it down on paper. It's also why many of us resist this, because we don't want to know what's going on. I mean, I, I really don't. I'd much rather be entertained. Um, but when I do some writing, it helps me discover what I believe, and it helps me discover what I feel. It is a very important spiritual tool, especially for those of us who hate to write. Um, people who love writing and get energized by it and can do it for hours a day, I can't even talk to. I mean, I'm very happy for them, but I'm busy, you know. Um, but when you just hate it and you can't stand it and you do it anyway, then I want to talk to you. I mean, how do you manage to do this? There's a whole bunch of other things written here. Huh. No idea what that... Oh, well, later. So, in writing, inventory, we talk about writing in inventory, and that fourth step, and in Al-Anon, that form of that inventory might be an autobiography. It might be lists, it might be charts, there are all kinds of ways... The method isn't as important as what it's about is getting some idea of where we've been and who we are and getting it on paper and taking a look at our role in the craziness. And sometimes I have major craziness. Uh, I'm so glad I've done a lot of, of work. I, I want to do a quick roomy poem and then I want to talk about a few serious things. Um, this is one he writes on, uh, this is about changing and then inventory. He writes, who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in myself. I should be suspicious 
of what I want. Because it never works out, right? Of course, right. All right, that's one. But this one, I, I like, he says, uh, on resurrection day, your body testifies against you. This is a fourth step poem. Your hand says, I stole money. Your lips, I said meanness. I said meanness, cruel things. I said meanness. Your feet, I went where I shouldn't. Your genitals, me too. <laughs> of course, that poem. Um, it's important to do those inventory steps just to pay attention to what's going on inside. If, like me, you're very easily distracted. And I would much rather pay attention to your stuff than mine. It's one of my gifts. Um, I would much, I find you much more interesting than me. I become an expert on your defective character. I know exactly what you should be doing. And these are very clever ways of me not dealing with me. So I've got to deal with some of my own stuff. I've got to ask the higher power to move me from step one to step two. Uh, I've got to ask for help. I can't fix me. Um, I was at a meeting in the last year, maybe two years now, and this fellow was talking about the disease of alcoholism, and he said, alcoholism is a lot like dancing with a gorilla. You're not done dancing until the gorilla is done dancing. <laughs> This is important information <laughs> um, because the way the alcoholic is put together, the evening starts off and he thinks the gorilla is cute, See? or she thinks the gorilla is attractive, and you say, let's dance. And it's fun. It's really fun for a while. Now, people who are a little more objective look back in horror, um, and the, 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 the dancer says, oh, you don't understand. You know, we're real a special relationship. If I ever get to the point where the gorilla doesn't make me happy anymore, I'll just walk out. It's going to be okay. However, as the evening goes on, they discover the gorilla doesn't let go. Um, you tell the gorilla you're getting tired and want to sit the next dance out, and the gorilla doesn't want to sit. You don't sit. Um, Later on, the gorilla wants to tango, and you explain you don't know how to tango, and the gorilla doesn't care. Um, and all of a sudden, you realize that the gorilla's hold on you is much more intense than your hold on the gorilla, and you can't get out. There was a commercial done a few years ago of Samsonite luggage put into the gorilla cage, and the gorillas just blast it to pieces. Samsonite luggage holds up pretty well. A lot of alcoholics don't. Um, and part of loving alcoholics, being involved emotionally with alcoholics in workplace, family, home, uh, friends, is we see lots of damage. And a real part of our lives is grief and loss because there's so much that's lost. And we need to be able to talk about that. I, 
I think uh, unprocessed grief results in years of hardness and rage. Sometimes when I talk to some older men who are just full of resentment and rage, underneath a lot of that is a lot of old grief that never got dealt with and it just fossilized and then became poisoned, of course. What I told alcoholics is that if they're sober today and at a meeting today, that's a pretty good sign that the gorilla has let go. If the gorilla has let go, get out of the cage. You've got to do some footwork. I mean, you've got to do some footwork. And don't go back into the cage even if the gorilla starts humming your song. Okay? Now, we in Al-Anon, what we want to do is we see them dancing together. We know. We've seen, I mean, we've seen the picture. We want to jump between them and separate them. And this is how we get our arms and legs ripped off. Because the gorilla doesn't allow for thirds. You know? Or if the gorilla does, we're as trapped as the alcoholic is. Sometimes the role we're in is someone standing outside the cage, looking at the nightmare. And there's a lot of feelings around that. And we have to be very clear about our limitations and abilities. And the insanity which we can see. Um, it's a hard place to be. Lots of us have much sorrow. Uh, there was a bumper sticker I put in the back of the room earlier this morning, green and white, and it just says, oh, lighten up. Um, I'll bring a few more of those tomorrow. Um, evidently, I kept telling that to somebody in Texas. Uh, who had lived a life of severe misery. I mean, very unhappy. Everything's wrong. Uh, nobody, I mean, it was just awful. And I, I just heavy-hearted, heavy thinking, heavy, heavy, heavy. And I, I told him, um, oh, lighten up. Um, so he went and made me about a hundred of those bumper stickers and uh, hands them out to people. And so... Because it's very easy without some kind of belief in a higher power to stay very heavy-hearted. The grief and the anger and the woe. In the last session, I talked about the third step, you know, and the wrecking ball and um, turning it over and oh my and I've lost control. Years ago, I, I was at a meeting in Los Angeles. This was an AA group, and there was a guy in there who was in crises. Um, he was, in fact, he was—he really, literally was in crises. It just happened that afternoon. This is one of those men's stag meetings that so many rumors are spread about. Um, and and uh, you know what's the crisis? And well, he had just come home from the day's work, and he found three people waiting for him in the living room. His wife, his girlfriend, and his boyfriend. Uh, <laughs> makes for a very complicated day. Uh, and it was a fluke. I mean, it, was, it really was a fluke. It was like, you know, people knew people from different things, and, and it was one of these situations where they all ended up at Lucky Market on the same day, and they were all asking for rutabagas or something and started up a conversation. And 
discovered they had more in common than they thought, and um, so they thought they'd wait for him. Well, he was a little panicky. Um, uh, some people lead very complicated lives. Uh, finally, it's not that we get better, it's just that we get worn out. And, and you just can't maintain the complication with the amount of enthusiasm you once did. Um, so and he was panicky and what's going to happen and so forth, and he, he kind of threw this all out on the floor, and his sponsor was there. He was a good guy, very level-headed. And his sponsor said, uh, didn't you just do the third step a couple of weeks ago? And the guy said, yeah. And so you can just see the wrecking ball, you know, coming through the front room. <laughs> and the sponsor said, it'll work out. Yeah, and it did. His life got much simpler. Uh, <laughs> my thing, one of my real deep crazinesses, and I tried to explain this to my sponsor who refuses to see the validity of my position. I think I would be happier if I got my own way more. He maintains that if I got my own way more, I'd be a danger to the neighbors. What does he know? Uh, so there's this thing, you know, where again, can God be trusted? What I know, I mean, the room, if I shoot an arrow right, it goes left. My own wants and desires are sometimes very, very screwy. And I think I want this and then... Teresa of Avila says that there is more, there are more tears cried over answered prayer than over anything else I know about. Ever hear someone out of eating say, oh please, dear God, give me a relationship? <laughs> and then a week later, this person comes in with the gorilla, you know, oh, it's so wonderful, what a dancer, what a dancer. <laughs> I got a call just this week uh, uh, from a fellow who I guess I sponsor. But I, and I use Al-Anon in sponsoring everybody I know. I mean, Al-Anon principles. Number one, a lot of things are none of my business. Number two, I don't know what's best for you. Number three, I don't know if you should move in or out. Number four, uh, what, you know, what do you say? Then I can give a little response, you know, but I mean, I, I'm not God. I don't know what I should do next, much less what you should do next, you know. And there are sometimes it's important for me to keep my big mouth shut. Because it won't help. So this fellow calls me every so often, so I guess I'm his sponsor, and he's made all kinds of decisions without asking me, which is fine. <laughs> but I mean, it's you're getting married, not getting married, uh, moving in, moving out, and uh, jobs. And I tell him, jobs are real important. Jobs are real important. However, Lincoln abolished slavery. You know, so keep these two thoughts in mind. A lot of, in a lot of contemporary America, we don't know that, you know. They, you're supposed to enthusiastically put in 16-hour days and take work home. We fought a civil war over this issue. Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> so, um... So he calls and he said, well, I didn't call for a whole month because I just didn't want you to yell at me. <laughs> I said, have I ever yelled at you? No. <laughs> but I thought you would this time. <laughs> so this is when I take out my Al-Anon book. I mean, I have it right there and I just have it there so I remember and I hold it, you know, and I put down the crossword puzzle and I say, okay, um, what's up? Well, I can't even say it. 
of course he's in love and the job is bad and they're moving in and blah, 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 blah. I said, keep me posted. <laughs> Take notes. I mean, do some writing. That's real important. You're still sober going to meetings. Great. Uh, you like her? Good. This is really nice. Uh, she like you? Oh, hooray. Keep me posted. You know, I mean, and do I know what the future holds? No. And then he said, well, um, maybe I'm projecting some stuff onto you. I think you'll be a lot more. I said, maybe. You are projecting all kinds of things onto me. You know, I'm not your father. I'm not your higher power. I'm just your sponsor. Relax. And keep me posted. You know, if things blow up, let me know. If things go really nicely, let me know. Uh, Job-wise, uh, if this one isn't working out, there are other times. Work, work is real important. I did give him a little instruction on that. He was wondering about going on welfare. <laughs> and I said, most people feel better with a job. Well, okay. <laughs> <sighs> then, see, then I call my sponsor right afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> you won't believe it, this jerk just did it. Bent a little. Um, <sighs> Step three. Oh, right, what I finally told him, and, and my sponsor told me, and again, this is dealing with others. I say, here, here are your options as I see it. You can spend more time with her or not. She has kids, you're getting along. Hooray, that's a good thing. And with work, you can stay in the job or not. And then I said, it can only be a terrible mistake. What do you mean? I hate it when you say that. Well, um, we make mistakes all the time. And when you make a mistake, promptly admit it and don't blame and uh, take responsibility and go do something else. This is how we learn. This is how we walk through stuff. It's real fragile. Um, and keep me posted. Uh, I once ran something by my sponsor. I thought it would be a really good idea. But I didn't want to mention it to him. Notice that. And then I ran it by him and he said, I don't know of anybody who's been able to do that and stay sober. Keep me posted. <laughs> Aren't you supposed to take charge of my life? No, no, no. You're supposed to take charge of your life. I'm supposed to work the program. I don't get people to work it for me. And the great motivator for me in working the program is pain and discomfort. Then I'm, I'm pretty good about this stuff. When I don't have pain and discomfort, I've been known to slouch off just a little. Step three. Step three is not an easy step. This oh, turn it over is not an easy step. And the fundamental reason is that most of us really don't trust God. <laughs> I don't mean us in Alamon and us in California. I mean us as human beings. I think there is something fundamental in the way we're put together where we think we know best. And we can't quite trust the higher power. Martin Luther wrote about this. Many have written about this, but, you know, four and a half centuries ago. Luther's suggestion was that the original sin was Adam and Eve in the garden. Was there a garden? Was there an Adam and Eve? Who cares? But the original sin... Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, Adam and Eve made the decision that God could not be trusted. 
Thus, they go from the place of paradise to chaos. It's called the original sin because it's the sin all of us inherit. We just don't think God can be trusted. If I really turned it all over, I will live in total poverty and dissatisfaction. I'll never get my own way again. It won't work out. Surely I know better than God. This, you, you, little hints of this. When For your prayer, you're giving God advice. A little hint that this is the tension. It is remarkable to hear people who trust God. I mean, who really trust God on basic stuff. An example from my own uh, past. One of the, I mentioned Mr. Gandhi is one of my heroes. Uh, within the Jesuit community, I also have several people. It's one of the reasons I'm still in the community. There are some men in this group that I really admire very much. And for a long, long time, our leader, the man who was elected to, to run the show for us, was a Spanish Basque by the name of Pedro Arupe, A-R-R-U-P-E. He was born in 1907. He um, did some medical work, joined the Jesuit community, went to Japan uh, as a missionary. And these are the days when Roman Catholic missionaries went to Asian countries to teach them to pray in Latin. You know, it made a lot of sense. Um, but there he was, and Arupe was, was very much involved in a lot of things. He lived in Japan a long time, spoke fluent Japanese. He spoke about nine or twelve languages by the time he was elected to govern our community in 1965. And he was a charismatic man. He was very vibrant and very alive, and when he entered the room, you felt the electricity. He was, uh, um, he was real. And uh, he was master of novices. He was in charge of the training of young men coming into the order. And the Jesuit Nevishit was in Hiroshima. And he was there on the day the bomb dropped. And um, they were behind the hill, so they weren't hit by the bomb. But he sent the novices all out to pick up those who had been so badly burned. And he used the little medical, well, not the little, he used the medical knowledge that he had to wash the people who were burned so badly. And they just had the whole Jesuit house full of dying people people who'd been badly, badly burned, and the chapel was just full of, I mean, all the pews had bodies on it, and Father Arupe was there, I guess this is early September now, 1945, and he was saying mass in Latin for to this little tiny group, but the place was full of dying Japanese who were not Christian, not Catholic, they're Buddhists or um, Shintoists, you know. And so Arupe is doing things in Latin with his back to the congregation like it used to be done. And every so often you turn around and bless the people. That was the old ritual. And he turned around and blessed these people. And he said, I saw a room full of, of charred Japanese wondering what I was doing. And it occurred to him, what are we doing? So this was a big moment. Does anything make sense? Kind of step one, let's rethink this whole enterprise. And he... Uh, did and then went through went through all kinds of changes. He guided our community from 1965 until, I guess, in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Um, when he was uh, in his 70s, he started having strokes. Now he's still in charge, but he started having strokes. And if you've ever had a relative who's starting to have strokes, uh, talk about fear of loss of control. This becomes a great big deal. And what happens? Because you can't even control your thinking process. You can't even, con I mean, the, 
what happens if I become immobilized? I was explaining to somebody that uh, my idea of a, of a good death is a quick one. Um, John Fletcher, who died eight or ten years ago now, lived over here in San Carlos. John Fletcher died at the age of 82 on the way to the golf course. And I figure, yes, you know, let's do it this way. But again, we're not in charge. Um, so I, I have no fear of dying, but the fear of being disabled. That's real high on my list. Arute starts having strokes. And he still, he ends up, by the way, uh, unable to speak. And he spends about six or eight years immobilized, unable to communicate. Uh, I would see that as a living nightmare. Towards the end, he lost all of his ability in every language but Spanish. That was the one he could still remember. But after his first stroke, he wrote this prayer. And his third step. He says, more than ever, I find myself in the hands of God. This is what I have wanted all my life from my youth. To be totally in God's hands. But now there is a difference. The initiative is entirely with God. <laughs> 